If you would like our free newsletters on various religious topics, just send us an email at cdebater at aol.com and free newsletters will be sent to you by mail. Just provide your postal address in your email. The following are samples of some of the newsletters we have available. Does God Believe in Atheists? Part 1 Seventh-day Adventism True or False? The Agony of Deceit The Origins of Muhammad's Religion Spiritual Warfare Are Psychic Mediums Communicating with Ghosts or Demonic Spirits? Testimony to the Eternal Godhead, the Trinity From Tradition to Truth, a Priest's Story an evaluation of the Oneness Pentecostal movement, Mormonism, counterfeit Christianity, turn or burn, Jehovah's Witnesses, deceived deceivers. Links to these newsletters can also be found at our website, www.biblequery.org. Once on the homepage, simply click on the menu icon at the upper left-hand corner. Then click on the Newsletters button. Feel free to print them out. 1 Peter 3.15 says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, with meekness and fear. Most of my videos are at least an hour or more long. And I learned that it's a good idea, maybe, uh, so you don't lose people right away, to do time markers in a video. So check out that description box underneath the video here on YouTube and look to see what the time markers are. You may not want to sit through certain parts of the video so you can go immediately to a time marker that, is telling you what's there at that point in the video. And that may speed up the process for you if you don't want to sit for an hour through everything. If you want to just get to the point, get those time markers and go right to the parts of the video you want to actually see and see them quickly. Uh, and I found that's worked very effectively uh, for a lot of my viewers over this last couple of years we've been doing this. And I wish I would have known that years ago. Greetings and welcome once again to our program. I'm Larry Wessels, your host. I'm Director of Christian Answers of Austin, Texas, with the copyright name for this ministry as Christian Debater. And I want to thank you for joining us today for another episode on a different topic. If anyone that's watched this channel knows we've, we do all kinds of topics and subjects, you basically never know where we're going to come from next. And this show we have for you today is really going to be something that's different than what we've done before on any topic. 
so uh, with me today is Rob Zins. Join us in the studio. Rob, great to have you here as usual, brother. Right you Rob, Rob has been a, a, a regular with us since 1990. I really don't like to put dates in my videos and things because those shows we did back in 1990, new viewers of those shows, are, which are still being watched to this day on the Internet, well, you could have said 2015 or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> so, but, but they don't, these people are watching these old videos we did. They don't know, because I usually leave dates out of all of it. I don't ever talk about presidents or anything like that. So they may think it was done the other day, when really it was like 32 years ago, right? Uh, but uh, that's all in the past, obviously. But uh, today we're going to be covering... Uh, a new topic, and for our viewers at home, I'd like you to, as you usually do when you're on the show, there's always going to be new viewers. That our old viewers, obviously, we got over 31,000 subscribers at the time of this uh, broadcast for our YouTube channel. Uh, but there's always new people that have never seen mm-hmm. you before or me, for that matter. So, give us a little introductory background information about yourself. Okay. Well, I'm no stranger to this program, uh, and I'm thankful for Larry and his willingness to do this sort of thing. It's one of the few ministries, I think, in the nation that's not afraid to stand up and speak clearly for the Word of God, the revelation of God as found in the Scriptures. And um, Larry initially invited me to have a word about the Roman Catholic religion. I was raised in Roman Catholicism, and... While pastoring a church in central Vermont, that came to my attention that a new book had been released by Roman Catholic writers where they were essentially trying to debunk the one book that I think has stood the test of time in answering the Roman Catholic religion, and that's a book by Lorraine Bettner entitled Roman Catholicism. But that book was dated 1952, I think, 54 maybe. And uh, this new book, written by the Roman Catholic apologist organization, Catholic Answers, wanted to make certain that everything that Bettner had affirmed from the Bible was false. So I read the book and I asked the question, basically, has anybody answered the Roman Catholic Mm -hmm. objection to Lorraine Bettner's book? Mm -hmm. And I couldn't find a suitable answer, so... That's when I decided somebody needed to write a book, so I wrote my first book mm-hmm. on Roman Catholicism, and that got me in a lot of trouble with the Roman Catholic community. The phone rang, and I was invited to debate a couple of their scholars, and this was way back in 1990, say 1992, maybe 94. Mm-hmm. And uh, having written that book and having debated them, things began to snowball, and before I knew it, we needed to start a ministry to take the gospel to Roman Catholics. So we did. The name of my ministry is A Christian Witness to Roman Catholicism, CWRC. If you Google it, write to our homepage, and you'll see we have an extensive homepage and uh, website on witnessing to the Roman Catholic religion. And so I've written another book that got me in more trouble with evangelicals because I was concerned about the number of evangelical organizations that were falling in line in the great ecumenical movement of joining Rome and inviting Rome into the uh, umbrella or under the umbrella into the tent of, of evangelicalism. So that book is entitled The Evangelical Romance with Rome. 
And I've been speaking on this topic, I guess, uh, gosh, that's a long time, Larry. Oh, yes. Think about it. That's 30 years. And uh, Uh, Well, basically, when we did those shows in 1990, you're working for another organization, Christians Evangelizing Catholics. You were already, even before your book, you you were already out there doing your thing. Hey, I should talk uh, a little bit about our new book coming out. Yeah, we have yeah. a brand new book coming out. It's called Another Gospel, and it is uh, in the final editing stages right now. It's a book that... Well, it's that, called uh, A Gospel Contrary. A Gospel Contrary, yeah. Gospel Contrary, subtitled Another Gospel. But uh, what we're doing is we're answering a Roman Catholic writer who has made it uh, his life's ambition to try to prove every aspect of the Roman Catholic religion strictly from the Bible. He can't do it, and we know he can't do it. So we've taken our time and gone line by line, paragraph by paragraph, sentence by sentence, topic by topic, and we've uh, set straight his manipulation of Scripture and uh, uh, clearly showing that the Roman Catholic religion finds its foundations outside of the Bible and continues to preach a false gospel. So this book will be coming out hopefully before Christmas. That's our goal. Yeah, at the time of this recording, we always got to remember, no telling five years from now, somebody will (laughs) be watching it. Yeah, the year we're filming this, you know, somebody's watching it five years from now, they would go, what, it's not out yet? But by that time, it would be out. It better be out. (laughs) In fact, we even did a a video series. I did it with the two authors, Tim, Timothy Kaufman and Rob, and, uh, we haven't put it out on YouTube yet because we're waiting for him to finish the book at the time of this recording. <laughs> so hopefully it'll be ready to go. By the way, yeah. something that's kind of ancient, but years ago, Rob had written, we had a Christian Answers journal. Now, if anyone wants to get a copy of this journal, uh, it's filled with articles. It's like uh, 50 pages long or something like that. Uh, but uh, it, it's called uh, the Christian Answers Journal. Rob wrote the lead article, When is Another Gospel Another Gospel? And of course, here you can see a young Rob Zins uh, there who is authoring this book, and uh, not book, but uh, the article. And so you were already a polyf- prolific writer even before you started writing all these books you've been talking about. Mm, yeah. So the viewers at home, if you'd like a copy of that journal, uh, I can't mail it to you, but I have converted it to a, an attachment for an email. So you can email our ministry to get this and some of the other articles Rob has written uh, by simply emailing cdebater at aol.com. And if you email us, I can then attach that complete article I just showed you from the journal. In fact, the whole journal is filled with all kinds of other articles and things. Uh, I've got articles in there. A lot of other Christian apologists that have been associated with our ministry have their articles in there. So it may be of great interest to you. Uh, but anyway, with that said, uh, Robbie also always never seemed to mention that you also have a degree from Dallas Theological Seminary. I always like to get that in to give you some kudos on your theological background. Well, that's true. We I managed to squeeze uh, four years into five at Dallas Theological Seminary, and I'm thankful for the background. I'm thankful for the education from Dallas Theological. It helps a great deal, especially when you're doing your research and you're exposed to the original languages. So it's been of great benefit to me to 
in all of my writings and yeah, prepared yeah. me for what I'm doing. Yeah. Unbeknownst, when you're a student in seminary, you're thinking about two things. How can I survive? And when is this thing over? <laughs> because it lasts so long, 126 credit hours, and we had to write a 100-page thesis. But I did write my thesis on forensic justification and majored in historical theology, which at the time prepared my background yeah. for engaging Rome. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah, in fact, a lot of people, they don't seem to give me, they say, why should I listen to you? You know, maybe you work at a peanut factory or something. Well, who are you to talk about? But when you bet, go actually put the time and effort into going to a seminary for years yeah. and, and enduring all that, well, that shows that you're serious about what you're doing. Now, in my case, I've been doing theology for since I got born again in 1981. Uh, but I've gone the C.H. Spurgeon route mm. when it comes to theological background. Uh, someone asked Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, one of the most famous preachers of the, the uh, 19th century, uh, what was his theological, what seminary did he go to? And what degree do you have? And Spurgeon said, well... I've got a BA degree, meaning he's got a born again right. degree. Right. He's been born again by the Holy Spirit, but due to his own personal intensive study, yeah. he which he started in his teenage years. Back when he's just a you know <laughs> just a toddler almost, he's reading all these books and everything. So you don't necessarily have to have a theological seminary degree to be able to talk about the Word of God. If you love right. the Word of God and you're born again with the Holy Spirit, you can be a great preacher for the Lord and He can use you as a tool. Absolutely. And, yeah. uh, and so, in contrast to Rob, all I can say is, Rob, my degree is, I've got a BA degree. That works. <laughs> that works. Well, if you think about it, the Apostle Paul was in the desert, so he had a DA that's right, that's right, Agreed. that's right. And uh, so. I'm excited about our new book because uh, I happen to think that Tim Kaufman, even though he is not a seminary grad, is one of the best thinkers mm -hmm. and the best writers that I've ever met. Well, he works, and, doesn't he work for NASA? Or so, I mean, well, he's got to be smart to be... He used to work for NASA. He, he yeah. helped build a space station over in Italy. Yeah. And now he owns, his, he owns a couple of uh, engineering firms. So he's no slouch, but he's a good theological writer. He's a good thinker. Yeah. And uh, when, when you read his sections of the book that we're writing, he's, he's my co-author. Yeah. I should say I'm his co-author. Yeah. That would probably be more <laughs> correct. <laughs> but uh, I, I called him a couple of weeks ago, and I said, when they read your section of our book, Tim, I'm sure they're going to say, I'm sure glad that these guys went to seminary. And Tim laughed. He said, but I didn't. I said, precisely. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, I'm just a, honored to write with him. Uh, yeah, just for the sake of the viewers, if uh, you don't know Tim Kaufman, here's a quick clip from that series uh, I'm getting ready to put out about their book. When the book is actually out, I'll yeah. put the series out on YouTube. Yeah, and Tim's got two great books out, you know. The, yeah, uh, the, yeah, uh, yeah. Now, in fact, I'll put that in the clip just good. to make sure they see that. But anyway, do you know anything about this book called uh, Quite Contrary, A Biblical Reconsideration of the Apparitions of Mary? Can you tell uh, us a little bit about that book? Yes, there's the book right there. It's actually written by a man that's 30 years younger than I am right now. So, uh, yeah, so um, I, I became a believer in 1990, and uh, I, had, I converted out of Roman Catholicism. I translated from the kingdom of death to the kingdom of life, and... 
when I came out of Roman Catholicism, I was inspired in my study of the scriptures to go back to look at what I had learned as a Roman Catholic and compare it to what I was now learning in my study of the scriptures. Exactly. Now, you've got another book here called uh, Graven Bread. And you get into the papacy, apparitions of Mary. You've already talked about that. And the worship of the bread of the altar. What can you tell us about that book? Yeah, it's uh, in some ways a sequel to uh, Quite Contrary. And I called it Graven Bread because uh, the scriptures prohibit the worshiping of graven images, images made by hand. Um, the bread that is used in the Roman Catholic rendition of the Lord's Supper, or what they call the sacrifice of the Mass, is a handmade object that they claim uh, when the bread is blessed by the priest becomes literally the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. And because it is alleged to be the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ, it is therefore to be worshipped and adored as God, which is why in the, um, uh, in the most extreme manifestation of what they call Eucharistic adoration, that is, worshiping the consecrated bread, uh, they either carry it through the streets uh, and expect people to bow down and get down on their knees as it passes by, or they have perpetual Eucharistic adoration chapels where um, the, the consecrated wafer is never left unattended, and it's uh, sitting there on a table or you know, in, in what they call a monstrance, which is just a display case for this consecrated bread. And 24-7, 365, there's always somebody on a kneeler in front of that piece of bread worshiping it. Uh, it's what they call perpetual Eucharistic adoration, that there's always someone there worshiping that piece of bread. And because many evangelicals are so ignorant of the actual practice of Eucharistic adoration and the fact that it's the apparitions of Mary that came uh, demanding that people should worship the Eucharist and insisting that her son is lonely in all the tabernacles of the world and is lonely because nobody comes to visit him. She, wherever she, the apparition of Mary appears, she insists that people set up a chapel for Eucharistic adoration so that more people will visit her son in the Eucharist. Okay, now let's get to the main point of this particular episode. It's going to be something kind of unique and uh, for most viewers, uh, it's going to maybe shock them when you talk about the title of this uh, book you're about to Yeah, what I want analyze. to do, Larry, I'm just going to hold this book up right here. There is a big article I read two days ago in Dallas Morning News. It's about a group of mainline pastors in the mainline denominations who are getting together and they are traveling and having conference around the country and the single issue that they're most involved with is their fear of something called Christian nationalism. The uh, impetus of the program evidently has come from their fear of what they call white evangelical fanatics who are involved in masculine patriarchy. I think I got all that right in one sentence. The idea is that Christians need to pump the brakes and step back a little bit and not get so involved on the issues of the nation that we live in. And this book, written by Kristen Cobes Dumez, who is a professor at 
Calvin University in Grand Rapids, Michigan, I think might be the tip of the spear because she has written this book in total collaboration with the same kind of thinking that we're hearing about from these mainline pastors. They're essentially saying that evangelical Christians who are going overboard on the social issues and speaking up and speaking out on these issues nationwide are evil because they've abandoned the gospel. And I'm not sure what their idea of the gospel is, and we'll get into that when we talk about her book, but the... uh, the book came to my attention because I was in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and I was talking with a, a friend of mine who I went to college with, and he said, have you read Dumez's book? I said, never heard of Dumez. What's the book about? And he said, well, you need to read it because she is doing exactly what needs to be done, putting evangelical Christians in their place. And I said, oh, wow, what's she done? So I ordered the book and read it, and I said, Nobody's responded to this yet, so why don't we just respond to it? Now, she takes the title here, Jesus and John Wayne, which is an interesting title because the book is not really about Jesus and it's not really about John Wayne. She thinks it is, but it's not. The subtitle of this book is How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. So she's, in her thoughts, thinking that white evangelicals have, in some sense, corrupted a faith and, by doing so, fractured a nation. Notice that Dumez says, a faith. She never qualifies or identifies what she means by a faith. And we'll get into that later on in our response to her. What I'd like to do to open up, Larry, is just give you an overview of the book and her main thrust and her main points. Okay, mm-hmm. interrupt anytime you want to. All right? As usual. Yeah. <laughs> On the back of this book, and that's where we're going to start at the uh, endorsement by um, a writer who really likes this book and uh, has endorsed it completely. The endorsement says, Jesus and John Wayne is a sweeping account that reveals how American evangelicals have worked for decades to replace the Jesus of the Gospels with an idol of rugged masculinity and Christian nationalism, or in the words of a modern chaplain, a spiritual badass, end quote. The values at the heart of white evangelicalism today are patriarchy, authoritarian rule, aggressive foreign policy, fear of Islam, and opposition to Black Lives Matter, and the LGBTQ community. And this thinking has transformed the faith with enduring consequences for all Americans. That's quite an endorsement for this book, but it's also quite a slam against evangelicals, white evangelicals. Yes. I'm a white evangelical. Do I fit into this category? (laughs) I think you are too. The the problem, uh, as we're going to see when we answer this, is that uh, the Jesus of the Gospels is never quite explained. And we're going to get into that. But let's move into what is the heart of the book. There are two questions in the book that really are a summary of the entire book. I mean, it's over 300 pages, but if I could condense it down. The first question posed by Dumez in her book is this, quote, How could 
family values conservatives support a man who flouted everything they insisted and that they held dear. How could the self-professed moral majority embrace a candidate who reveled in vulgarity? How could evangelicals who had turned what would Jesus do into a national phenomenon justify their support for a man who seemed the very antithesis of the Savior they claimed to emulate? And of course, she's referring to the election of Donald Trump. How could a conservative, white, evangelical Christian vote for somebody who reveled in vulgarity and uh, who seemed to stand against everything they decreed for their own families to be moral and right. Dumez rejects the whole concept of the lesser of two evils. She says that's a cop-out. She doesn't believe that Christians would ever vote for Trump on the basis of the lesser of two evils. She says those Christians who say that are copying out and they're not telling the truth. She rejects also the theory that there are a number of people who are evangelicals in name only who call themselves evangelicals and they vote for Trump but they're really not evangelicals. She says that's bogus as well. So she knocks two legs out of the stool that somebody might want to sit on to explain how evangelicals ever vote for uh, Donald Trump. She affirms this. Evangelical support for Trump was no aberration nor was it merely a pragmatic choice. It was rather the culmination of evangelicals' embrace of militant masculinity and an ideology that enshrines patriarchal authority and condones the callous display of power at home and abroad. The Mez is convinced that at heart, white evangelicals are fans of promoters of and undeniably for militant masculinity, patriarchal authority, and a callous display of power both at home and abroad. She doesn't have a very high opinion of white evangelicals. As we move forward, we're going to see this again and again and again. The accusation that white evangelicals replaced the Jesus of the Gospels with a vengeful warrior Christ. So this is the theme of the book, that white evangelicals have replaced the gospel, replaced the person of Jesus with a vengeful warrior Christ. And then she takes off. That's just the beginning. Soon she, we discover that white evangelicals support preemptive war. They condone torture. They favor the death penalty. They own a gun. They're opposed to immigration reform. They have a negative view of immigrants. Two-thirds of them support the wall. White evangelicals believe that Islam encourages violence and perceive Islam in a natural conflict with democracy. White evangelicals support harsh penalties for criminals, and they support excessive force against black Americans. Who could possibly like a white evangelical? given that kind of pedigree. And the real bad guys, aren't they? Yeah, they're bad guys. They're the enemy. That's we should the first... be wearing black, shouldn't we? We ought to. That's, that's the opening salvo of the entire book. That's the first question. How could family values, conservative, 
white evangelicals ever vote for a guy like Donald Trump? We'll give her an answer to that. The second question of the book is this, and it's a little bit more complicated. But here's her second question. There are 31,000 verses in the Bible. Which ones are considered essential guides to faithful Christian practice? Who is Jesus? Is he a conquering warrior that takes no prisoners, a man's man who wages holy war, or is he a sacrificial lamb who offers himself up for the restoration of all things? Well, given those two alternatives, it's obvious from her writing that she is extremely prejudiced against white evangelical Christians in giving us two bogus choices here. He's neither nor. She also holds that blacks who do hold to the four distinctives of evangelicals apply their faith counter to white evangelicals. In other words, even blacks understand the essentials of evangelicalism, but they've learned to apply it properly, and when they do, it's against everything white evangelicals believe. Okay, so we're the enemy. Oh, before you proceed, I just wanted to mention to our viewers out there that I do have a video that's been well-received called Essential Bible Doctrines. Mm -hmm. If you want to know what the essential Bible doctrines are, and she's talking about something like, as Rob has mentioned, that doesn't even touch on what the Scripture says is essential to believe. And there's a lot more than what she just mentioned. So check out that video. You can see it there on your screen. Uh, I highly recommend it to you. If you really want to know what the essentials of the Bible are when it concerns theology and God and the gospel and all that stuff. Go ahead, bro. Um, to summarize uh, the main thrust of the book, not to go into the particulars just yet, Demez summarizes like this. White evangelicals link themselves to patriarchal authority, gender difference, Christian nationalism, and white racial identity. Also, white evangelicals are attached to William Wallace, Teddy Roosevelt, Douglas MacArthur, and George Patton. But the real hero is John Wayne. Why John Wayne? He symbolizes patriarchal authority. He embodied militant masculinity and Christian masculinity. Masculine power is also needed by white evangelicals. Most evangelicals believe that America was a Christian nation. White evangelicals are guilty of fear-mongering, which include fraudulent tales of Islamic threats and Obamacare that fueled transgender bathrooms and gay marriage. Bottom line for Demez, and I quote, contemporary white evangelicalism in America is not the inevitable outworking of biblical literalism, nor the only possible interpretation of historic Christian faith. That's quite an indictment, isn't it? Yes. So how do you unpack that? Well, one step at a time. And that's what we're going to try to do, exactly. one step at a time. You've been and very good at doing stuff like that over all these decades, so let's see what you got. Well, I take her at her word. I think that she means everything she says. I think that she's trying to be honest, but I think she's dead flat wrong and really doesn't understand the gospel or the implications of the gospel and she really doesn't understand why Christians ought to stand up, why Christians ought to speak out and why God in a sense commands it to be so. 
No Christian can be still when there's unrighteousness in the land. It's impossible. So we'll get, we'll, we'll get to that. The first accusation that white American evangelicals have replaced the Jesus of the Gospels with an idol of rugged masculinity, I think defies credibility when within 309 pages of her writing, there is no mention or even attempt to identify the temperament, the personality, the disposition, the character, and attitude of the Jesus of the Gospels. Rugged masculinity is not defined. We are left to guess what that means. What I'm saying, Larry, is that if you're going to say that white evangelicals have replaced the Jesus of the Gospels with rugged masculinity, then you better set forth the Jesus that is correct. And in 309 pages, she never does. And I think she doesn't because it's impossible. How would you encapsulate in one person the identity, the temperament, the personality, the disposition, character, and the attitude of the Jesus of the Gospels? I think it's impossible. You can take, for instance, when Jesus was angry and he came to the temple and he started turning over the tables. He got violent. And running out the money changers. Did he, did he make a whip? And he oh. made a whip and he started whipping <laughs> whatever was in his way. Now you take that one incident and you can say, well, he's a terrorist. He's, a, he's a, an, an outlier. He's, a, he's violent. This is criminal. He doesn't have the right to do this. Yeah, the FBI would come after him. There's no way. He should have been arrested right then and there and put in jail. Because he was a, uh, a revolutionary. And he wanted to overthrow not only the Roman government, but his own government among the, uh, the Jews of Israel. Or, shall we say, oh, there's Jesus over there. What's he doing? Well, he's holding little children in his lap. He's quiet. And he's saying, you must become like a child. Well, I guess that he's milk toast. I guess he just loves kids. I guess he's effeminate. I guess he doesn't really live in the real world at all. He's a, uh, he's a weakling. Mm-hmm. You know, he's pale. And uh, he's sort of a sissy. Would you say that was his personality, his temperament, his character, his attitude? What if we turn forward in the book of Matthew and listen to the tongue lashing that he gives to the Pharisees where he unloads upon them in two full chapters, not letting them up for air, undressing their hypocrisy, undressing their evilness, undressing the fact that they weren't representing God at all. Well, what is he then? Or he's a religious zealot, I guess. And he's a self-proclaimed prophet. You wouldn't want to follow a guy like that. He's a zealot. He's undone. He's lost his mind. These are the religious leaders. These are the ones who devoted themselves to God. So what I'm saying here is that it's easy for somebody to say that white evangelicals have replace the Jesus of the Gospels with rugged masculinity, and none of these terms are ever defined. So I say it's absolutely irresponsible. You mean she didn't reference that part where he goes into the temple, knocks over the tables, the money changers, uh, whipping people with a whip? No. She didn't mention that in her book? Not at all. So now what's interesting is she can safely assume, putting a book out like this, that most people are... And the, the polls show it are fairly in this country very, 
very ignorant of what the scripture says. So you can just make declarations based on the fact that you know they don't know what the word of God says. So you can conveniently leave out things. Yeah, you begin to to get the sad feeling that, uh, okay, we're going to build this straw man over here, step by step, and then we're going to burn him down. And that's exactly what I think is going to happen. In this review that I read at the beginning, the reviewer sweeps all of evangelicalism under the bus. It's all-encompassing. He never groups evangelicals into some or most or many. No, it's all of them. It's a bigoted class. And the endorser of this book purposely leaves the impression that if you are a white evangelical, you're guilty. Guilty as charged. Thirdly, the outrageous claim that the heart of white evangelicalism is patriarchy, authoritarian rule, aggressive foreign policy, fear of Islam, along with opposition to Black Lives Matters and the LGBTQ community, is nothing more than the worst kind of race baiting or the unfair use of false statements to stir up hatred for a particular group of people. That's the very thing that she hates is the idea of race baiting or using false information to stir up hatred against a particular group, in her case, LGBT and Q. But don't you see a double standard? She's talking about white evangelicals. Doing the same thing. She's, wouldn't that be a form of race baiting? Yes, She's saying it is. they're white. Yes. They're evangelicals. Yes. And then, then she sloughs that off as not being what she's accusing her right. target is. She's guilty of muckraking and indiscriminate mischaracterization of the worst part. It is blanketed muckraking. There probably are some evangelicals who overstate their case. Mm-hmm. There are probably some evangelicals who don't care about Black Lives Matters at all or think that they're wicked or think that they're evil. There are probably some who are over the top when it comes to the hatred of the LBGT and Q community. But to take an entire classification of white evangelicals and throw them under the bus and accuse them of this is just, as you say, it's race baiting and doing the exact same thing that later on we'll read that she hates. I think such a stinging rebuke and indictment of white evangelicalism betrays, I think, a bombastic, overstated slur reminiscent of the very man who would become the very object of her barely qualified hatred. She hates Donald Trump because he race baits, makes false statements to stir up hatred for a particular group of people and doesn't tolerate somebody else's ideology. Well... (laughs) She falls in the same class. Unfortunately, she's doing the exact same thing. Exact same thing. One of the favorite words of Dumez is patriarchy. You see this over and over again in her book. And according to Webster Dictionary, patriarchy is a social organized, social organization marked by the supremacy of the father or in the clan or in the family. Broadly speaking, it's... um, Controlled by men of a disproportionately larger share of power. But Demez takes the word patriarchy, which is not a biblical term at all, mm-hmm. 
she takes this word patriarchy, applies it to white evangelicals and links it to these words. Domination, authoritarianism, militancy, and heroic masculinity, none of which is remotely biblical. None of it <laughs> is remotely biblical. The assumption is that if you're a father, you're a patriarch. And if you're a patriarch, you are a dominator. You're authoritarian. You're militant. And the one thing you believe in more than anything else in life is a heroic masculinity. And you think that Jesus is the, the incarnation leading to your favorite person in all the universe, John Wayne. That's, that's the follow-through. That's yeah, the way it's going yeah. in this thing. That's her, that's her whole argument in a nutshell. She's yeah. tying everything to John Wayne with everything you just stated before that. So I want to point out, Larry, that this book is all about what's wrong. Everything is wrong. According to Demes, patriarchy is absolutely wrong. Didn't you it's say that she was a professor at Calvin College? Yes, she is. And, and so she's teaching people that go there for Christianity... I would assume. Calvin College is supposed to be a Christian university, it has, right? It has, it has like, like all universities and colleges today, Calvin College was founded by Christian Reformed Church yeah. back in the day when it was founded on biblical principles based upon scriptural uh, morals and values and, and a worldview. But like most others, Harvard... Brown, Princeton, like all of them, they were all founded by Christian men trying to establish the worldview of Christianity, taking the Bible literally and seriously. You mean those but, colleges aren't doing what Jonathan Edwards was going to go take over one, the headship of one of those uh, schools you just mentioned? Yeah. They don't still believe the same thing now? I think you'd call it loose, loose, <laughs> loosely evangelical. I mean, they may be more conservative than, I don't know, Michigan State or University of Texas, but you, you know the way it's gone. We're here in Texas, and you could probably throw Baylor in the same kind of category. Oh, yeah. Is Baylor a Christian college full of Christian professors teaching the inerrancy of the Scripture? Well, I learned a lot because my niece graduated from Baylor University, right? And so I'm at the graduation ceremony as her uncle, so I have to you know, show my approval of her graduating from this institution, and they had a form of religion during the, the service, mm. but denying the power thereof, yeah. right out of Second yeah. Timothy chapter 3, you know, around verse 5. So uh, I learned that, okay, they got a so-called veneer of Christianity, but it's not real Christianity. And I think what you're talking about is what most of these schools and institutions they're sort of like that. They just they just yeah. have a veneer, but it's not real. It's exactly true. Uh, and we could talk all day about the number of small colleges that were founded by Christian organizations that have gone to seed. Yeah. And today, it, it, you know, it's just so hard to hold it together because the minute you let in non-Christians to make your budget... Yeah. And non-Christians become more and more and more, and they become successful alumni, and they give back to the college. All of a sudden, everything's broadened out, thinned out, and then disappears. Yeah. You know, liberal arts becomes the god of the age. In fact, yeah. uh, 
I, I don't want to just uh, downgrade Baylor, i got to be honest. I graduated from the University of Texas on that big Texas tower there. Uh, they got a Bible verse on the tower. It says, the, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Coming right out of the Bible. Yeah. But UT is just a school now of doctrines of demons. <laughs> I, right. yeah. I mean, that's my alma mater, you know. Yeah. Uh, I love the football team, but uh, <laughs> but as far as what they're teaching, there's communism. There's everything going on over there uh, that uh, they're, they're is not right. biblically approved. What may be happening here right before our very eyes is the fact that maybe Dumez thinks that she is a true evangelical and she is a true Christian and all those who think like her are as well. And the problem, obviously from her book, is white evangelicalism. Well, she may believe that because after all in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, I believe it is, verses 9 through 12, it says God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that yeah. they all might be damned, yeah. who believe not the truth. Yeah. So that's what happens to a lot of people. They are, God puts on the delusion on them and then they think they're doing them God a, a favor. <laughs> the best way to swallow up Christianity is to say that Christians aren't Christians. We're Christians. Right. Rome's done this for years. Right, right, yeah. right. Yeah. So, Dumez, really, according to the entire book as we move through it, Dumez thinks that patriarchy or male dominance is all that's wrong with white evangelical Christianity. It is what Dumez calls militant masculinity that enshrines patriarchal authority, which in turn condones a callous display of power at home and abroad. But we have to guess how authoritarian rule is a product of honest biblical patriarchy. So let's talk about honest biblical patriarchy. It's not a biblical term. Normally, when we think of the patriarchs, we think of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because they are the so-called fathers of Israel and ultimately fathers of the Christian faith, right? Mm -hmm. But when you move through the scriptures, there are no other patriarchs. There's no patriarchal dominion. There's no patriarch militant masculinity given to us in scripture. Yeah, but didn't she, didn't she quote all these Bible verses in your book? You read the book, I haven't. Yeah. But uh, didn't she just give... Book, chapter, and verse uh, to prove her point about all this patriarchy. No, she doesn't get book, chapter, and that, book. Yeah, isn't that interesting? The, the reasoning is this. Dumez does not claim that the Bible teaches authoritarian rule or hatred for people who are opposite in their views. Rather, she repeats the mantra and the assumption that the Bible teaches patriarchy which naturally leads to all kinds of dreadful outcomes. So does the Bible teach patriarchy? That's the question. Well, the answer is yes and no. The Bible does teach patriarchy in one sense, but it doesn't lead to what she calls dominion and militant masculinity and a callous display of power at home and abroad. That's the disconnect. So if we're going to use the word patriarchy, and if we go back to the definition given to us by Webster Dictionary, um, 
a social organization marked by the supremacy of the father in the clan or the family. I don't know what what uh, Webster means by supremacy. That's a loaded term. Mm-hmm. Why don't we take a look at what the Bible has to say about a husband and a father and a man's leadership in the home and if you want to extend it out into broad categories outside of the home, okay? The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, Now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. So in the incarnation, the head of Christ is God. Is that patriarchal? In a sense, it is, isn't it? In the sense of leadership, headship, it is. And in the incarnation and the resurrection, the head of man is Christ. Is that patriarchal? Is that Christ being the leader? Is that Christ being? In a sense, it is. And in the human experience of marriage and in the society groupings that God has created for us, Paul says point blank. You realize the head of every man is Christ. The head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. It seems like the author of this book was at that point, on the point you just said, would say that's a sexist comment from Paul. It is. It's a, now, she can say that is restricted to marriage, and we might agree with her. But there is a headship in the sense of Adam being the federal head of all who have been created. That's the teaching of the Apostle Paul later on in the New Testament. And there is a sense that Adam was created first. And the purpose of the creation of woman was so that Adam had a what? A helpmate, right? Yes. So even at the point of creation, if you're paying any attention to Scripture, there's this idea that the male is given headship authority over the female in the creation account as well as in the marriage and in general, generally speaking, in society. What does that mean? Well, in the marriage, which the Bible is primarily concerned with insofar as the man and headship, we read in Ephesians 5.22, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church. So here we see this idea that being the head of your wife, you're to do it in a manner that Christ is the head of the church. And how is Christ the head of a church? He gave himself up for the church. He feeds the church. He takes care of the church. He, he loves, loves the church. church. And we are to love our wives as Christ loved the church. Okay? So, that yes, I would say there's headship. Is it militant, masculinity, and power-grabbing, patriarchal? No. We don't find this yet. Let's keep searching. You mean the husband's not supposed to pull a six-iron like a, in a cowboy western on his wife when she doesn't do what he says? No, a tire iron. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Would John Wayne do that? I thought he'd just use a six iron. Oh, anyway. No, John Wayne would throw <laughs> Marine, Marine O'Sullivan into the water if she couldn't oh. swim, though. 
He would. I think in yeah. that uh, that one movie he did, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of it. He he actually spanks her with a, a, a shovel or yeah. something like that yeah. near the end of the movie. I know. Reno era. So. But if we're we're not we're actually we're not going to talk about John Wayne too much because the mess apparently doesn't understand that it's the character that he plays that is so infatuating and in so that is so in the character that he plays is not the bad guy he's always the good guy why is he the good guy because he is operating from a christian worldview and i mm-hmm. attempt to prove that okay colossians 3:18 wives be subject to your husband as is fitting in the lord first peter 3 in the same way you wives be submissive to your own husbands so that if any of them are disobedient to the word they be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Let not your adornment be merely external, but let it be the hidden person of the heart in the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of the Lord. So, wives being submissive in this way to their husband, and letting their husband take the lead and following the lead, is akin to doing it for the Lord. How can that be masculine um, worshiping heroes, masculine patriarch, militant masculinity and all this stuff? I, I get the impression that the mess has not read these portions of scripture or even contemplated it. Maybe the reason she doesn't mention any of this is that not only does she know that her, right, her, her readers are, are ignorant of the word of God, but maybe like you just suggested, She's ignorant of it herself. Yeah. Yet she's a professor at this college. She ought, she ought to know better. She's, in, she's, out of, she's out of her depth when she's talking about the idea of, of patriarchal authority. There's no such thing. What there is such a thing is toxic patriarchy. Mm-hmm. This is the idea where the husband is right and never wrong. This is the idea where the husband rules with an iron fist. This is the idea that women have no say in the marriage. This is the idea that uh, men are milk toast if they talk things over with their wives and try to come together for a plan of action or move forward together. This is the idea that the man carries the gun, the man makes the decision, and the woman is nothing but chattel. She's a slave. That's toxic patriarchy, and that's building a straw man and setting it on fire. The Bible will not touch it. It has nothing to do with it. But the mez needs a villain for white evangelical Christianity. Throws them all under the bus and says that patriarchy has created it. Well, there's no such thing as patriarchy in the Bible. And it doesn't even suggest it. Are there people who are awful to their wives while at the same time claiming to be Christian? Yes. Are there ones who are overbearing? Are there churches that are overbearing? Oh my goodness, there certainly are. She has given uh, in full display the terrible errors of evangelical churches who have failed to come to the aid of women who have been abused by their husbands and who have uh, shut down the household and threatened their wives, who have forced sex upon their wives, and who have been caught sexually abusing their own children. She has shed the light on all that. And we would agree with her. That's not biblical. They're as bad as anybody who would do that. 
and we would agree. That's toxic patriarchy, but the Bible knows nothing of it. We've just covered the verses where the Bible talks about headship and what does that mean. If you are in a marriage where your husband leads, and if you are in a marriage where your husband understands that leading is loving your wife like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for the church, there's no way that that can be confused with toxic patriarchy. Well, what's interesting, too, is she's making, throughout your whole uh, uh, review of this book so far, she's making one logical fallacy error after, after another, another yeah. over and over again, yeah. the, the fallacy of overgeneralization. Yeah. Uh, you put 100 people in a room, and they're not all going to think exactly alike. Right. They're going to have all kinds of different opinions. They'll do things differently. Uh, maybe they're born in a different country, whatever it might be. It, and when to just lump everybody in these, these categories, that's a category error in logic. Yeah. So anyway, go so ahead. Demez gets away from, remember, patriarchal authority gives birth to evil, domination, rigid masculinity of the worst sort. But the Bible doesn't teach patriarchy in that sense. And that's the problem. Okay, she quickly moves back. That's another logical fallacy, yeah. as a matter. She's, it's the old switch and bait type yeah. thing. You set it up here, but, and she's not telling you that's not what the Bible says. She's saying it's this way or the highway. But anyway, go ahead. She quickly gets back to her main theme of politics. Yes. Having said this, okay. For Demez... Here's a sample assessment of what white evangelicals support. It's a parade of imaginary horribles, and she has an endless diatribe again and again over what she calls militant patriarchal masculinity. That's not taught in the Bible, but she's invented the terms and she's going with it. Okay, so white evangelicals believe in preemptive war. That's not true. That's a lie. I've never met a white evangelical who believes in preemptive war. The idea that we attack first. Of all things, I would think the Christian community would believe in a just war. And a just war would be a war that is founded on just principles, principles of justice. And we kind of are not as well educated as I would like Christians to be on the difference between an unjust and a just war. Okay? Not everything a politician tells you is the truth. Not every war that we get into can be sanctioned by the word just or righteous. Okay? I'll go along with that. And there probably are Christians who, unfortunately, would say, my country, right or wrong, and I believe in our country, so if our country's going to war, it's a just war, it's a righteous war, I'm in that war, and I'm going to support it totally. We ought not think like that. I don't know of too many Christians who believe in a preemptive war. Should we attack Russia now? That would be a preemptive war. That's what's interesting about that. At the time we were doing this video, uh, there's the war in Ukraine going on. Right. And uh, the way I look at it, and I'm a white evangelical, right? So right. I don't believe in the, like you said, preemptive war concept or any of that stuff. But we're dealing with a country that's a superpower. They've right. got a, at least 100, 150 super uh, sonic ballistic nuclear missiles that we have no defense against. 
that's already been admitted by our military, they could blow away 150 of our major cities like that. And why do you want to go to war with, you know, over something that may be less significant? There's polls that show that Americans think more about, you know, this next week's football games than they do about the Ukraine war. <laughs> so, right. so why get a nuclear war going on and get yourself involved in that when it's not necessary? Yeah. Uh, I would say if you put 100 Christians in a room and you, you ask them, should we send troops to the Ukraine to defend the Ukrainians against Russian aggression? Would it be 50-50? Would it be 80-20? Not all Christians are going to agree on this. So for her to say that the problem with white evangelicalism is that they all believe in preemptive war is ridiculous. Right. We don't. Even We're white evangelicals and we don't even agree with this. Right. <laughs> she says white evangelicals condone torture. Well, I would ask her, at what level is interrogation over the top? Okay, you've got terrorists who know the secret plans of other terrorists who are going to slaughter thousands of Americans abroad or at home. We know they've got the information. They won't give it up. They'd rather die than give it up. Okay, so you start interrogation. At what point is it over the top? Put a hundred Christians in the room and say, when do we stop? Do we give them electrical shocks? Do we waterboard them? Do we refuse them meals? Sleep deprivation? How far is too far? You're never going to get a consensus that white evangelicals all agree on well, it's the same the... logical fallacy. It it's is. overgeneralization. Uh, it can't be proven by statistics or facts. And when, <laughs> does, when does she stop? Well, according to what you told me, never yeah. in this book. Well, as far as if she doesn't believe in interrogation, well, when does she stop? Right. Or does she ever interrogate? Well, if you're yeah, a white evangelical, I think she would believe in some kind of torture for you. <laughs> Maybe she could be that inconsistent. She says white evangelicals believe in the death penalty. We sure do. Why? I would say you put 100 white evangelicals in a room and ask them if they believe in the death penalty. Most of them should say yes because it was instituted by God. Yeah, in fact, that's a Bible God. concept. It's a Bible concept. It's a Bible dictum. Uh, after the flood, that's the first thing God said to Noah and his family. If any man kills another man, his blood would be required of him. It's in uh, Deuteronomy. Yeah. It's yeah. in Leviticus. Yeah. Even in the New Testament, Romans chapter 1, yeah. Paul says that people that do these things are worthy of death. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's right there in the New Testament. So, so she hasn't read her Bible on that one. Uh, how about Christian evangelical, white evangelicals own a gun? That's right, we do. It's a constitutional right. Well, when Jesus sent out his uh, 70 to do some evangelism and stuff, did, uh, did he tell them to take a sword with him? Mm, he did. You mean Jesus would approve of gun ownership? Even though back then he didn't have guns, but no. he was saying, take a sword with you. You might be dangerous out there. I think the framers of the Constitution might have read a little bit about that. Okay, we're not afraid to defend ourselves, uh -huh. but we don't believe in preemptive war. Right. She's got it backwards. Right. Right. All right. 
Since when do white evangelicals not like immigration reform? Well, I think she's got this a little bit backwards. White evangelicals do want immigration reform. We want legal immigration. And that would be a reform of the entire system. We are all for immigration reform. I think what she means is that white evangelicals don't want immigration reform that allows everybody to come in whenever they want to, unchecked, unidentified, and uh, overwhelming the social services and medical facilities of where they land. School systems. Yeah, yeah that, to her, that's reform. Reform would be, let them all in. Our reform is, no, let them in legally. So we do believe in immigration reform, just not her type. Okay. We, do we support the wall? Most Christians would support the wall, I think. I'm not sure about this one. I do, because I think we have a right to protect our borders. I think we have a right to ensure that those who come in are not enemies of the state. I think we have a right to control our borders. Well, all the drugs coming yeah. across the border as well. Fentanyl deaths are way up in the United States. Well, here's a question for you. You're much more uh, up on this than I am, Larry. She thinks that white evangelicals are terribly mistaken when they think Islam encourages violence. Well, all you have to do to know what the deal is on that, because our, our ministry here, anyone can go to our YouTube channel, See Answers TV on YouTube, just do this, hit the search box, and you'll go to... Uh, our main homepage, in fact, the first people, well, if they're subscribers, the first people they'll see on there are, well, if they're not subscribers, they'll see you and me. Mm-hmm. That's our main introductory video. But uh, if you scroll down on our homepage, you'll see that we have an entire playlist on Islam. Yeah. And uh, all we're doing in that is we're not trying to denigrate Islam. We don't hate Islamic people at all. You know, in fact, it's a, for the love of God and our fellow man that we have studied Islam, read Islam, uh, know what the religion teaches. And when you find reading Islamic sources, there's a reason why uh, Islam spread across North Africa and into Spain mm-hmm. and all these other places they went into. There's a reason on how that's done. And Many of the reasons for that is there is, in fact, have you ever thought of the uh, scimitar in the Islamic? Mm-hmm. Uh, see, there's reasons for all that. There's, if you study Islam like we have done, in fact, uh, Steve Morrison, our, our uh, director of research for Christian Answers, he's been on many of our, in fact, him and me have done many Islam shows. Yeah. Uh, in fact, on the screen there, you're seeing some of the stuff that we've done. Uh, I mean, it's almost 100 videos. I'm kind of being careful here on what I say because mm-hmm. I know there's a lot of censorship going on. Right. So I have to be careful, very careful, because I, I, I don't want anything to happen to this video or any, anything mm-hmm. else. But uh, if you study Islam, you'll know immediately the answer about whether Islam is violent or not. But okay. once again, people who are ignorant of religion, like ignorant of the Bible, mm-hmm. ignorant of Islam, ignorant of Hinduism, or whatever religion it might be. You're just ignorant. You don't know. Uh, 
so people can say anything they want. They make false and outrageous statements. Yeah. Without any background research. Exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. In fact, like one Christian apologist said that Islamic apologists can make all kinds of incredible claims because they know 99 out of 100 people listening to them will never do the research. Right. So they can say anything they want because... Almost no one's going to back, you know, do some research to find out. All I'm saying here is we did the research and we're just quoting in our videos and stuff what Islam actually teaches. Good. And so I, I think, I think uh, that she's wrong on this. Yes, she is. We don't think Islam encourages violence. We do the research and we let Islam speak for itself. Exactly. That's yeah. how we do it. You okay. just find out what Muhammad said. You find out what... Uh, the, uh, the the surahs of the Quran say themselves. You find out the uh, the uh, the different uh, side books of Islam. We have it all in yeah. here. It's it's there for anyone to to okay, so, to research. So instead of ridiculing white evangelicals, maybe she ought to do the research. Exactly. Yeah, and that's what this book seems to be lacking. Indeed. Any background information. That would prove her false. She's leaving it all out. That's and hoping you won't do the research. That's, that's why, we're, that's why <laughs> we're doing the research on her. All right. Um, Demez believes uh, that white evangelicals condone harsher penalties for crime. I would say she's right on that, Larry. I would, I would think that all white evangelicals would endorse harsher penalties for crime. But see, these are loaded statements. I'm not for harsher penalties for those who commit misdemeanors. I'm not for the, the follow-up and carry-through of a mistake a teenager makes when he's 18 years old and 10 years later he can't rent an apartment because he's got smoking one joint of marijuana on his record. I think that's a little bit too harsh. We're not for harsher crimes. We want the penalty to fit the crime. But in today's world, where they're letting criminals go free, and it's outrageous. I mean, uh, I guess she would think that we want harsher crime penalties when I've heard in California, unless you steal $1 more than $1,000 worth of goods, you're not going to be prosecuted and you're not going to be uh, caught. Yeah. They're going to let you go. I saw a video by accident on YouTube that uh, these guys came in in hoodies and masks into just a convenience store of some yeah. sort. Yeah. Now, in the middle of the day with other customers in there and everything like that. Destroyed it. Uh, they, they, they had big bags. And in this video, they're just going in there. It's like six or seven of them. Right. And, they, and, and they're just pulling down merchandise and stuffing st- in the, bag, stuff yeah. in the bags. Yeah. Like Christmas with Santa Claus and the elves or something, but and they're doing it in front of all these customers and they're being, even being videoed. Right. <laughs> and, and of course the guy that videoed it put it on YouTube so he could see. But and they and they all just walked out, you know, with these big sacks and right. and left. And the same kind of stuff is going on with these youngsters. These felons are are uh, are hiring these uh, like thirteen, fourteen year olds to go carjacking mm. because they won't be prosecuted mm. at their age. So they're carjacking all over the place uh, and getting away with it. 
and yeah. not being stopped. So, so, so any any kind of enforcement of law against crime for Dumez would be considered harsh. Because well, there she is leaves none. it up to herself to define what harsh means. What harsh is, yeah. See, she can call the shots. Yeah. And you don't have a right because you're just one of those bigoted white evangelicals that, yeah. that thinks John Wayne is something. But anyway. And uh, finally, in her list of the ten horrible things, evangelicals, white evangelicals believe in excessive force against blacks. This one is interesting to me because I don't think white evangelicals believe in excessive force against blacks. I think they believe in excessive force against evil. No matter who's committing evil. Doesn't matter if they're white or black. Doesn't matter if they're Asian, South American, Hispanic. It doesn't matter where they've come from, who they are, what color their skin is. White evangelicals want them put in jail. We are not for harsher excessive force against any subgroup or any political group or any uh, ethnic group. She's got it all wrong. It may look that way. And here's, here's the difficulty we're faced with our cities, I think, in America. Liberals like to come along and say things like, well, 80% of the people in jail happen to be African Americans. That's wrong. Well, it's not wrong per se if 80% of the crimes committed were committed by black African Americans, blacks. What would be a travesty of justice if you were to say, that's wrong, let's let them out of jail and let's get this to 50-50. So when you, get, when you get 50% of one ethnic group or one uh, religious group in jail, you've got to stop there until it's filled up with 50% of a different group. That would be a travesty of justice. And I've said for years, could it be that it's not excessive force against any particular group, it's excessive force against evil? And um, white evangelicals don't believe that. And we don't believe excessive force against blacks. That's for sure. So now, we're running out of time, Larry. So let's go back to the heart of the book, the first question. Remember the first question? Mm-hmm. Here was her first question. How could family value conservatives support a man who flounts everything they insist on is good and hold dear? How could the self-professed moral majority embrace a candidate who reveled in vulgarity? How could evangelicals who turn what would Jesus do into a national phenomenon justify their support for a man who seemed the very antithesis of the Savior they claim to emulate? In other words, how could you vote for Donald Trump? How could a Christian... Well, I want to draw your attention out there, and I hope all of you take some time and look this up online. This is an article written by a respected white evangelical. His name is Wayne Grudem. Wayne is a solid guy, solid Christian, white evangelical. He's written several books, and he's also the author of a very, very good systematic theology. 
Yeah, why voting for Donald Trump is a morally good choice, part one. This is his article. I'm not going to read the entire article to you, but evidently Dumez... But we'll put it up on the screen has and no people can clue. read it for themselves right. you know, without you having to read it all. Let me highlight for you. Grudem says it's a morally good choice to vote for Donald Trump because of religious liberty. And he cites example after example of religious liberty that's being taken away by the secular majority. Because of Christian business owners, he cites example after example of people like Hobby Lobby, who won a 2014 Supreme Court case, but it was five to four. And if Trump was president, this is, this is uh, the prediction of uh, Grudem prior to the election, if Trump were to be president, then he could switch the Supreme Court to a more conservative stance. And he did. He actually did. And now Hobby Lobby is protected, not by a slim 5-4 or a switch by uh, a Democratic president. It's impossible to lose that. Christian schools and colleges under the gun. The, uh, The citing of several Supreme Court cases where Christian colleges and Christian universities were prohibited from Uh, having speakers and holding rallies for Christian organizations. Churches, here's an interesting one. If the Supreme Court wanted to, if the court were packed, the court could rule that any school district would be allowed to ban churches from renting school buildings on Sundays. Mm -hmm. And the renting of elementary school buildings and high school buildings is one of the ways in America where Christian Churches who can't afford yet their own buildings get their start. Mm-hmm. They could be banned right. from meeting on Sundays uh, in a, in a uh, liberal court. Freedom of speech. Any pastors who prayed in the name of Jesus at a city council meeting could be banned. Any football coach meeting with his team out in the middle of the field and praying in the name of Jesus could be banned, and he was banned, and he was fired mm-hmm. by the liberal school district. So... Wayne Grudem has gone out on a limb, and he did go out on a limb. This is all written in uh, past tense because the election is over with. And, uh, of course, uh, Trump won the first election. He did change the court, but he lost the second one because hopefully uh, this was not disregarded by Christians and he lost the vote because there were more non-Christians and Christians who were involved. But the heart of the first question is, how could we possibly vote for Trump? We could possibly vote for Trump, and white evangelicals out there give the straight-up answer. You vote for policy over personality, because policy is more important than personality. And the Trump policies are more in line with the Christian worldview, whether he's a Christian or not, is irrelevant. His policies are more in line with the Christian worldview, and because of that, he's worthy of your vote. The policies of his opponent, and I would argue with Demez again and again and again, that we do use our minds when we vote, and we do consider the issues when we vote. And as far as I'm concerned, I voted for Donald Trump not because of his personality, not because I like him as a person, 
Not because I think he's a moral paragon that we should look up to. Not because I'd want my daughter to marry him. I voted for him because his view on the social issues, strong military, the, the reversal of Roe back to the states, the idea that Christian schools need protection as much as the government schools, and uh, uh, the whole court system as far as penal sanctions against criminals aligns more with a biblical worldview than his opponent. His opponent... Now, speaking of that, does she talk about the alternative, his opponent? No. Does she talk about what the opponent... To Donald Trump would be no. That's that's <laughs> the problem. You she didn't mention a word about it. You Ignorance. Get, you get the impression that she has written this book anybody but Trump, right? And that's the danger. That's the danger. If she considers herself to be a true evangelical, she's certainly not coming from a biblical worldview. She's coming from a a, a phony claim of patriarchal animosity, patriarchal masculine. Um, rugged individualism, uh, the the whole idea that men are cruel and white evangelicals. So support her point them. here is they, she don't want you to vote for uh, the white evangelical way of thinking, but vote without saying who else to vote for. She doesn't mention what the alternatives would be at all, and is there, what these other candidates would believe in. Larry, is there a Christian alive on this planet? who believes that a woman has a right to kill her baby in the third semester or even post-birth abortion. Well, that's what they're trying to do now in California. Last I heard in the news, that was a bunch of months ago, but uh, they're trying to pass a law there where you can kill a baby 28 days after it's born. Right. Is there a Christian alive that believes that that's... But you're talking about someone that's a real Christian. Yeah, a real Christian. Because there's a lot of phony Christians, fake Christians everywhere. Christians in name only, right? Right, right, right. right. But is there a real Christian? But a real Christian that believes the word of God, you cannot commit murder. That's one of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill. Or the the Hebrew there is actually murder. Right. So, So for me, if I were to have a conversation with Christian Dumez, I would say, Christian, The president we have now and the majority, the minority of the Supreme Court believes that women have a right to kill their babies. Is that the kind of world view that you see from Scripture? I'd ask that question. Yeah. It's simply not. But she's never going to be able to answer because if she doesn't address it in her book, right. she's leaving all that out intentionally because it's not going to support her arguments. Exactly. Well... Coming to the end of it, Larry, the second question of the book is this. There are 31,000 verses in the Bible. Which ones are considered essential guides to faithful Christian passage? Certainly, this book written by Dumez did not take into consideration the scripture. Never mentioned is the depravity of mankind never mentioned is the role of government to punish evil and suppress evil. It's just sweeping allegations claiming the wickedness of masculine patriarchy. Okay, so let's try to answer her question. 
Is Jesus a conquering warrior who takes no prisoners, a man's man who wages holy war? Is he John Wayne? Is he, is he General George Patton? Is he General MacArthur? Is he uh, George Wallace or not George Wallace? Who's the other guy? William Wallace, right? The Scottish oh, yes, guy yes, in, yes, uh, yes. in yes. Uh, Mel Gibson. Mel Gibson's <laughs> movie. He's not, he's not George Wallace Ray either. Marks. <laughs> he might be George Wallace. I don't know. No, he's not George Wallace. William, William Wallace. Wallace. There's William go. Wallace. There you go. So let's try to answer that. A little help that. from the video, man. How shall, we picture, <laughs> how shall we picture Jesus in our minds? Well, all Christians, all white evangelicals would agree that he was a willing sacrifice. This is the purpose of his incarnation. He came to do the will of the Father. But in this sense, he was under the direction and willing submission to his heavenly father. He was under good biblical patriarchal authority. He loved his father. He came to do the will of his father. We know this from John chapter 12. I just want to read this section. Jesus says in John chapter 12, He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him on the last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me commandment what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. That sounds like a man who loves his Father and is willing to obey his Father and is willing to be under the direction leadership and authority of his heavenly father. Amen. Right? So, here's the question. Was Jesus a warrior? If a warrior stands for the truth, speaks out the truth, no matter the cost, even unto death, he was a warrior. Jesus was unflinching in the face of constant resistance and danger. He knew the heart of man was wicked and deceitful. He knew the leaders of his own country were wicked. Occasionally, his righteous indignation was on display. The fact that he did not provoke a political uprising is not an indication of timidity or weakness. He had a larger mission. The destruction of this age would have to await his future return. At that time, he will take no prisoners. Jesus was not a weakling or a warmonger. One can take isolated instances of Jesus' life and try to build a case for probably any kind of social ordering in the political sphere. He called out the money changers and undressed verbally the Pharisees. He was a gentle corrector and a confronter all at once. The idea that we can surmise correctly what would Jesus do in any given instance is purely speculation and based upon natural prejudices. The better measure of conduct is to ask, what does the Bible teach the followers of Jesus Christ? White evangelical Christians do just this. In Micah 6.8 of the Old Testament, we read these words. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? but to do justice, to love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. 
Those are the marching orders of white evangelical Christians. Part of that is to do justice. The mess balks at the ideas that Christians should go to the polls and, God forbid, vote a candidate who would do justice, vote for a candidate who would love kindness and walk humbly with our God. She leaves out the fact that all true Christians are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of God gives forth fruit of peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. There's no law against these kinds of things because they're part and parcel of the true Christian experience. It doesn't breed patriarchal dominion. It breeds kindness, love, patience, and a willingness to follow their Heavenly Father. We could go on and on, Larry, about the uh, definition of evangelicals as she does But I want to get to the end of this. Demez has a bone to pick with anybody who would dare enter into the political sphere and be strong with it. To strongly say abortion is murder of the child in the womb. To strongly say yes, we need to protect our borders. To strongly say there are millions of bad actors on the world's stage and we need a strong military defense to strongly say that we need freedom of religion, freedom for all religions to worship in their own way, and Christianity is not going to be an exception to this rule. Christians need to worship, Christians need to speak out, Christians need to be involved, and Christians speak from a a worldview. The majority of Dumez's book takes us on a historical tour of selective evangelicalism according to the dictates of Dumez. The basic premise is that evangelicals, with their insistence on masculine patriarchy in hand, have thrust this in the face of the United States with disastrous results. According to Dumez, we're the evil ones, we're the wicked ones, because we've put in her face a masculine patriarchy. He's wrong on both counts. But she goes on and on. Listen to the high profile, sickening failures of white evangelicals that are mentioned in her book. She mentions Billy Graham's endorsement of Richard Nixon. She mentions Rushas Rushduni in his return to biblical law in the Old Testament. She mentions Jimmy Swaggart, James Dobson, Jim and Tammy Baker, Bob Jones University, Doug Phillips, John Piper, Fox News, Bill O'Reilly, Ronald Reagan, Phyllis Shafley, Moral Majority, Beth Moore, Al Mohler, John MacArthur, Anita Hill, Tim LaHaye, The Eagle Forum, Tom Landry, C.J. Mahaney, Oliver North, Joe Paterno, Jerry Falwell. The list is unending, according to her, of white evangelicals who have inadvertently or deliberately served up white evangelical militant masculinity and patriarchy that has divided this nation. What do you think of that? <laughs> well, it's no, it goes in line with everything we've been talking about in this whole video and what she's been saying. So it's just... It's just the book of full of logical fallacies, okay. double standards, hypocrisy. Uh, there's nothing basically valid or 
factually backed up by any of her accusations throughout this whole discourse that we've had so far on this video. And she's not proving her point, but to an ignorant person, it sounds might sound good. good. Yeah, sounds That's good. the whole idea. Yeah. See, false advertising. We want to have a word about this idea of Christian nationalism, because I think we're going to hear more and more about Christian nationalism in a negative way. Yeah. It's going to be cast in a, in a negative uh, light, certainly by the likes of Dumez that already has. Dumez mentions often the idea of Christian nationalism. It's not defined by her, but the idea seems to be twofold. It is the idea that America was founded by evangelical Christians and is established upon Christian principles. But while much may be said of the reasonable fairness of the Bill of Rights and the spread of power through distinct branches of government, the model of American government is more of a backlash against monarchical dictatorship than it is a backlash against so-called patriarchal masculinity. Wouldn't you agree with that? I thought that we were fighting a revolutionary war against the dictatorial control of King George and right. the nation of, of England, Great Britain. Right? right? Wasn't that well, the impetus for I, you're right, because I, uh, I've always been a student of military history. So <laughs> I've uh, heard uh, that uh, the Patriots even had a tea party because they were a little upset about the taxes yeah, that yeah. King George was yeah. uh, proposing to do. Yeah. You know, so what can I say? I don't, think that, I don't think that Christians believe that our nation was founded by evangelical Christians. No. In fact, if you do a study of a lot of the founders of this nation, they were, I mean, Thomas Jefferson, he wrote the Declaration of Independence, for instance. Right. Uh, he had what I, and I've used this joke for years on other television shows, and we had a radio show and live call-in television on public access TV. I've done this, I've said this a lot of times about Thomas Jefferson. Uh, he had the, the nation's most, at that time, First, truly holy Bible. Because what Thomas Jefferson did with his Bible is any verse he didn't believe in. Cut it out. He, he scissored it right out uh, of there. Yeah. So by the time he was through cutting out all the stuff he didn't like that was in the Bible, it was full of holes. So he had a truly holy, holy, holy Bible. Bible. Yeah. And uh, Benjamin Franklin, I mean, he was just a deist. But you've got, not many of them are what I would say true biblical or evangelical Christians yes. at all. Safe to say, if you're a Christian today and you believe this country was founded by evangelical Christians, you're just wrong. It wasn't. I'm sure there are many of what we would call evangelical Christians who may have been involved at the Continental Congress, that may have been involved at putting together this nation the way it stands. And there was a Christian worldview presence there. Uh, the, the whole idea of uh, having... A, uh, a government composed of three equal governing bodies was based on the idea that man is totally depraved right. and absolute power corrupts absolutely, okay? Right. This is not in the Bible, but it's a good idea from a scriptural point of view. The scriptural point of view is man is depraved. You give him power, you give him authority, he'll use it mm -hmm. again and again and again, and he'll dominate. So if white nationalism means that this nation was founded by White evangelical Christians, you got it all wrong. It wasn't, and white evangelical Christians need not think that. But secondly, Christian nationalism 
may be the idea that the right and wrong of any matter must be settled by the Bible. If that's Christian nationalism, I don't think white evangelicals are involved with this. I don't believe that any idea of right or wrong needs to be settled by the Bible under the jurisdiction of any particular man interpreting the Bible. That would be Christian totalitarianism. It would be worse than Sharia, Sharia law. Sharia, Sharia, Sharia law. Right. We, we don't have, in Christianity, we don't have popes or bishops in places, high places, interpreting the Bible, telling us what to do, telling us where to go, telling us how we should get to heaven, dominating our lives, giving us phony sacraments for forgiveness of sins and things like the Roman Catholic religion has. We have the Bible, it's true, and the Bible does have a worldview, that's true, and we read the Bible. But our endorsement of what is right and what is wrong from the Bible is not going to be instituted into federal legislation with a grand poopa at the head of it laboring under the banner of something called Christian nationalism. I've said here, Christian nationalism will never prevail as a national institution. It doesn't need to be. All we have to do is keep in mind what happens when you give one particular Christian view, even if it's a Christian view, the authority to corral and enslave a different Christian view. That would be totalitarianism, it would be terrorism of the worst kind, and um, uh, Christians are not interested in Christian nationalism. Christians are interested in other things. So I really don't understand Christian nationalism as it's being portrayed, because I don't think it's well, given a fair about, idea. Well, another thing about stuff like this is because you're, you look at America, for instance, where we are, most of the people are very secularized these days in the time we live in. There's just a small fraction. I've got a video on this. Check it out. Uh, few are saved and... Many are lost, stuff like that. There's a, on the screen, you can see that video. It'll give you all the stats. So we're talking about church people. And when you read things like, in, poll indicates that only 2% of mainline Protestants in the U.S. have a biblical worldview. What does that say about the other 98% that attend church? 98%. And then the teens, which we just went to. Well, anyway, here's another poll. This one coming from December 5th, 2003. It says, everyone has a worldview, but few have one that is biblical. That's the conclusion of a national survey by Barna Research, which found that just 4% of American adults have a biblical worldview. Additionally, only 9% of those categorized as born-again Christians have a biblical worldview, Barna said. Now think about that. The born-again Christians are supposed to be the real Christians. The real ones. But, according to this poll, of these people that claim to be born-again Christians, only 9% of them believe what the Bible actually says. Which says that 91% of these people that are claiming to be born-again Christians are not born-again Christians. <laughs> I'm going to read you another article here. Uh, this one is published in, out of Nashville, and it says only half of nation's senior pastors hold biblical worldview, Barna study shows. 
All right. Barely half of the nation's senior pastors, but a leading 71% of Southern Baptist pastors hold to a biblical worldview. A new study by the Christian researcher George Barna shows the poll of 601 randomly selected senior pastors representing some 50 denominations and conducted in November and December showed that only 51% of the nation's pastors held to a biblical worldview. Significantly, the entire sample included pastors from conservative, moderate, and liberal backgrounds. While Southern Baptists had the highest percentage, United Methodist pastors had the lowest at 27%. In fact, only 28% of pastors from mainline denominations held to a biblical worldview. Even 87% of what is called evangelical Christianity doesn't even know what the true gospel is or what justification by faith is. Everything's looking miserable here in this country for yeah. how many real believers there are. So how can you do Christian nationalism when the vast majority of the people are atheists, secularists, uh, agnostics, have all these other phony religions and stuff like that that have nothing to do with Christianity, how are you going to impose that on a population like that? It's not, not going to happen. happen. No, and right. we don't want it to happen. <laughs> we don't want it to happen. But having said this, Larry, Christians have the right to vote and to attempt to influence the right and wrong of a matter. Yeah. No matter what question comes up, we're going to have our say. We're going to have our vote and we're going to have our ideas, Okay. This influence troubles Dumas and is the chief factor for her contention that white evangelicals have corrupted a faith and fractured a nation. She blames us. She doesn't know that this nation has always been fractured. This nation has always been corrupt. She just doesn't want you to vote a certain way. She just, that's what that's this book's right. all about. Don't vote in this certain way. Yes. I've written on the question of fracturing a nation, it seems lost on Dumez that the majority vote of the nation is a threat to the very existence of Christianity in America. The fracture has always been there between the Christian worldview and those who do not share it in America. Today there seems to be a contest now as to which worldview can we vote in one agenda over the other, and that's good for this nation. I think that's good for this nation to have Christians stand up and say, this is wrong, and others say, why? No, this is wrong. And in this nation, when that happens, we go with the vote. And Christians lose this vote occasionally. Christians win this vote occasionally. But you're not going to silence Christians by blaming a fractured nation upon them. Demez, in her book, as a professor at a college that was founded on Christian principles, does not seem to mind the imposition of the secular view going right into the living room of Christians. Doesn't bother her at all. Demez cannot fathom that the secular world, which is the majority in the United States, is at least equally responsible for a fractured nation. She never blames them. Just us. If Christians have lost sight of their distinctively Christian message of salvation by faith alone in Christ alone and abandon it for an obsessive 
political agenda, then I think repentance is in order. I don't believe we've done that. It's not either or. It's both and. We hold the gospel in our right hand, and we hold the politics in our left hand, and we move forward with a Christian biblical view. Never do we abandon this. And never do we abandon this. It's unnecessary. She's given us a choice that simply doesn't have to be made. Gomez leaves the door open for little or no Christian influence or involvement in government affairs. The secular state, Larry, gets a pass for advancing same-sex marriage and forcing Christian shop owners to go along with it. The secular state gets a pass for warning pastors and Bible teachers that preaching Romans 1 may be considered a hate crime and punishable by law. Dumez Dumez gives the secular state a pass on forced vaccinations, literally closing churches that do not comply. The secular state gets a pass on unfettered abortions at the expense of Christian taxpayers who vehemently disagree. Christians are asked by the state to pay taxes to support government schools and tuition costs for private schools. There is no opt-out despite secular public schools that do not teach Christian morals and values. We still have to pay for them. There's no opt-out. That doesn't bother the mess. Only white evangelical Christians. Well, you know, it's interesting. She wouldn't even write to the faith of Lot in Solomon and Gomorrah because even he was disturbed by what he was seeing all around it. Right. White evangelicals, according to Demez, have abandoned an unidentified faith in favor of exercising all citizens' right to vote and lobby for what they think. She never identifies this word. How white evangelicals corrupted a faith. She never identifies what that faith is. 309 pages. Never identifies. And she puts it on the cover of her book. Corrupted. Well, here's what I think our response should be. And you can add to this if you want to in closing. Christians do not want John Wayne to marry their daughters. Why would that be? Do you know anything about John Wayne? Yes. In fact, uh, I've been waiting for this moment for a question like that to come up. There you are. I did a little internet research getting ready for this. Because after all, there's going to be people that will be watching this video simply because John Wayne's name is mentioned in the the title of the YouTube video, right? Right. So I figured, and people can see this. I got this right off of uh, Wikipedia. I asked the question, what religion was John Wayne? And, uh, of course, the answer came back from Wikipedia. You can see it there on your screen. Roman Catholicism, according to his son Patrick and his grandson Matthew Munez, who was a priest in the California Diocese of Orange, Orange County in uh, uh, California there, uh, Wayne converted to Roman Catholicism shortly before his death. And uh, you also read there uh, from Wikipedia, Marion Robert Morrison, that was his real name, May 26, 1907 to June 11, 1979, known professionally. And the people at home, I'm not going to read all this, but they can just... See that additional information uh, there, and it gets into his death on the second page there. Um, uh, he was taking cancer vaccines. It didn't do any good for him. He died of stomach cancer on June 11, 1979. In fact, during that time, I remember 
I was working on an offshore oil rig out in the Gulf of Mexico. My dad works for an oil company, and he got me a job because his boss was the best friend of Marlin Drilling Company's uh, CEO. And so I got got to work on an offshore oil rig, and I remember telling people, oh, John Wayne's in the hospital. He's... I hope he doesn't die on me while I'm out here because I can't. I, I want to see all the memorial stuff about mm, him, mm, you know. It, mm. But I miss it all because I'm out there, almost getting killed. Out, I mean, you know, you can go on a four man roustabout crew. If your crew can go uh, two weeks without any of the four of you getting seriously injured or killed, mm. you get a two hundred and fifty dollar bonus. Ah. So, just in one week, I almost got killed or injured six times. <laughs> Uh, I wouldn't recommend doing a job like that. That was a that was a rough summer job my dad got me. But uh, so what kind of what kind of man was John Wayne? Uh, okay, he he was basically an agnostic for most of his life, okay. and then of course seeing that he could uh, at least maybe make it to purgatory if he converted to Roman Catholicism, he had the last rites done with the priest coming in there and all that stuff, so he could he could. Uh, make it at least a purgatory and then work his way out of there to maybe eventually get to heaven. So that's the kind of person he was. And you kind of see that in his movies. You see when he says prayers in some of these cowboy movies or whatever, Mm -hmm. it's never anything specific. And actually some of it's kind of derogatory towards God. So I wouldn't recommend anybody as a white evangelical marrying my daughter or... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or anyone else. To John, uh, John uh, Wayne. I think if I'm right on this, John Wayne uh, did not take on board Christian morality. No. I think that uh, he was an example of secular morality. I, yeah. don't, I don't know his personal background totally, so I'm not going to guess on it. But what, what I'm saying here is John Wayne portrayed a person on screen that was for law and order, there is a right, there is a wrong. Criminals need to be caught and they need to be jailed. They need to pay for their crime. Mm-hmm. That they're, We need to protect women and children and we need to understand that uh, the world we live in is a dangerous world. That's all a Christian worldview based upon the depravity of man. Yeah. And that's yeah. what appeals yeah. to Christians. Yeah. But they know, they know once the movie's over... For all they know, John Wayne's drunk in a bar somewhere, chasing women. We don't know. Or maybe he went home and was a great father. I don't know exactly. But the point is, is that Christians do not want John Wayne. They want the screen picture of morality, right and wrong. Okay. Christians also do not think that Phyllis Shapley's Roman Catholic religion is true Christianity. Phyllis Shapley probably did more for evangelical women and women in general in this nation during the 1970s, 1980s, early 1990s than any other woman Mm -hmm. in the United States. Mm -hmm. But Christians should know enough to know that she did not embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, just for the sake of the viewers who don't know know the difference between Roman Catholicism and true biblical (laughs) Christianity in a quick... Highlight synopsis. Could you just explain that to any viewer that didn't know there was a difference? White evangelical Christians, black evangelical Christians, Hispanic evangelical Christians, doesn't matter where you are. If you are an evangelical Christian, you believe that you are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, that you are justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, that it is 
salvation by grace through faith alone, not of your works, not of your efforts, not through a religious system, not through sacraments, not through your own good deeds done in faith. It is simply recognizing the fact that you need the righteousness of Christ because you don't have your own righteousness. And the righteousness of Christ is offered to you through faith alone. That's how you gain the benefits of the atonement of Christ on the cross. Roman Catholics believe in infant baptism for the forgiveness of sins and the the rite of infant baptism or the sacrament of infant baptism opens the door for all the other sacraments whereby you, by participating in the Roman Catholic sacramental system, take on forgiveness of sin just by participating in these sacraments. So it's a sacramental religion based upon your good works and your meritorious works within the Roman Catholic religion. Roman Catholics are taught that there's a purgatory, that when you die, if you're not good enough to go to heaven and you're not bad enough to go to hell, you fall into the safety net. There is no such thing in Christianity as purgatory. Roman Catholics are taught that the Pope at Romans is the victor of Christ on earth and that he has supreme power over all Christians everywhere in the world. Roman Catholics believe this. They pay homage to the Pope. And, of course, evangelical Christians, Christians of all um, nationalities, all color, doesn't matter, believe in just the opposite, that there's only one vicar of Christ on earth, and that's the Holy Spirit sent into the lives of those who are Christians to guide and direct and to convict Christians as to how to live. The Bible is the only word of God in Christianity. In Rome, there are many words of God. There are infallible popes, infallible councils, holy tradition. We don't believe in any of those kinds of things, and nor should you. If you're a true Christian, you don't need those kinds of things. Roman Catholics are taught to pray to Mary. Mary will be an advocate for you, stand between you and God. And um, they also are told that when they attend Mass and they eat a wafer, they're actually eating the transubstantiated body, blood, soul, divinity of Jesus Christ. And by eating that, venial sins are forgiven. They're taught to confess their sins to a Roman Catholic priest and do penance afterwards to have their sins forgiven. It's an entire religious system paradigm that has nothing to do with true Christianity. So, if John Wayne believes in that, and that was his court of last resort at his death, and he was counting on that, then he's uh, trusted in a false gospel, has no hope of heaven. Phyllis Shafley was a strong Roman Catholic woman, I understand. She was involved in the Roman Catholic religion. She believed in the Roman Catholic religion. She preached the Roman Catholic religion. That is not Christianity. But you can take on board the fact that she was 100% for right, wrong, against abortions, for private schooling, and the kinds of things that we are co-belligerents with other religions and about these social issues. So I've said in my closing remarks here, Christians do not think Phyllis Shapley's Roman Catholic religion is true Christianity, although we can take some value in what she did to forge ahead for the right and the wrong of matters. Now let me interject this yeah. just for a moment so you can get to your final conclusion. Okay, we've taken a situation going on at the time we're doing this video in California, the governor there, Gavin... Newsom, mm. who's a Roman Catholic. Right. And he thinks he's doing good there. Uh, he's 
just in this past week, I understand he signed 13 abortion laws. And uh, he's putting up billboards and things where he's quoting Jesus. And he quotes uh, Jesus as where he says, love thy neighbor as thyself. And he's using that verse from Jesus to substantiate abortion, the killing of babies. So doesn't that make him all right with God? No, no. That's, that's a stupid verse even to begin with to use uh, to uh, endorse the idea of abortion. Uh, Abortion. If you love your neighbor as yourself, as the verse says, to love yourself is to love your whole self. And if you're a woman and you're a Christian and you love yourself, you love the baby that's part of yourself. You're feeding that baby. That baby is part of you. You don't murder a part of you if you love yourself. Taken out to its logical conclusion, if you love yourself by killing your baby and you're to love your neighbor like you love yourself... You go kill part of your neighbor. That's the logic of it all. And I know what he's saying. He's trying to say, if you're a true Christian, you should love the people who are killing their babies. Because you're supposed to love your neighbor. Well, if your neighbor is murdering your daughter or raping your wife, uh, you want to love that neighbor? Or do, you want, or do you want justice? Or do you want strong enforcement of the law? So he's confusing this whole idea of love your neighbor with his pet practice of supporting the abortion mills in the abortion industry in America. And he calls himself a Roman Catholic. I'm sure you are, but you're not a Christian. That's the point. We have to keep coming back to the point. Call yourself a Roman Catholic all, all day long. What good is it to be a Roman Catholic? 50% of the Roman Catholics who probably live in your neighborhood, hate you for your stand on abortions and so-called women productive rights. Roman Catholics are vehemently opposed to abortions. So you've got half your community or more hating you for what you're doing. And they're right to hate you for what you're doing because what you're doing is wrong, it's evil, it's wicked. So call yourself a Roman Catholic all you want to. But the problem is Roman Catholics aren't Christian. And that's why you can't understand a word I'm saying. That's what I'd say to him. Absolutely. You don't get it. You well, don't understand it. Well, uh, I know Nancy Pelosi, who's a Roman Catholic, uh, the, uh, the archbishop of the diocese that she's in in San Francisco, forbade her from, forbade her from being in, taking, partaking of the Mass. So what she did is she, drove, she flew to Rome after that and got the Pope to do Mass for her. So she could expiate any of her sins. So that makes her all right. And Did she take the Lord's table? I mean, the wafer, the Roman Catholic um, mass. Did she take that wafer from the Pope? Yes. She did. The Pope did that. Pope so did. he overruled the archbishop who had excommunicated her from doing that. Uh, so now she's okay. So everything's all right with her. Right? Larry, the whole system is rotten to the core. She could have just saved a lot of uh, air miles and flown to the next state, found some priest to give her so-called Roman Catholic communion. Mm-hmm. Want to go to the Pope? Go to the Pope. He's not a Christian either. But it's what not did the I Bible just say? Right. What did I just say? He's not a Christian either. Right. Go ahead and go to the Pope. The Pope doesn't engage in the gospel. He doesn't believe the gospel. He doesn't preach the gospel. 
He does not cherish the gospel. He doesn't know anything about the glorious gospel of God because he's stuck in a religion that long ago decided that we are not justified by faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. He's stuck in a religion that believes the opposite. So what do Christians really want? Christians want a government that protects unborn babies. A government that separates state from the church by allowing the church to teach the Bible and apply it to their lives. Christians want the right to defend themselves against criminal elements of society. And they expect government to do the same. It is undeniable that crime is at an epidemic proportion in America. Christians want tough laws that are enforced. Christians and history teach us that there are plenty of evil actors on the world stage. Hence, Christians vote for a strong defense, a strong military. Christians have the same right as all the other religions in America to vote in candidates that would induce, pass, and enforce laws that reflect moral values of a Christian. Larry, it's remarkable that a professor of history at a college founded on Christian principles would not recognize the evil that prevails in the absence of a true Christian worldview. Well, it's it, like she's deaf, dumb, and blind to what's happening in the streets right next to her. Well, I think it's more of a propaganda rag that she's not deaf, dumb, and blind. She knows exactly what she's doing and what she's trying to promote. It's yeah. just pure propaganda. Yeah. Pure propaganda to get votes and turn people away from ideas that she believes in, which are all the things we were just condemning from a Christian point of view. Yeah. So there you have it. Uh, I hope this has been uh, informative for you. I hope that you have time if you want to. This is available on Amazon. Just look it up. Buy it for yourself. Take careful notes if you're a Christian. Because I think, Larry, it's coming our way. I think with this uh, latest article in the Dallas Morning News about the uh, liberal pastors from mainline denominations canvassing the the, uh, country, trying to get the temperature of people, telling them that the evangelical right is not even Christianity, that it's evil, and all we're opting for is Christian nationalism. It's a lie. And you've also got woke theology going along with that hand-in-hand, trying to get votes for the secular Marxist theology that that, that, uh, socialistic system that they're promoting uh, is, is, you know, it's it's just a political, it's an arm of politics, you might say. Right. So that's what it's all about, brother. Well, are, are you done now? I'm done with her. (laughs) I think you covered it very well. Okay, with that said, brother, I'll sign us off for now. This is Larry Wessels with Rob Zins for Christian Answers. I want to thank you for joining us. And just remember this. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father except by me. And especially not through her book that we just talked about. But you come to Christ through the word of God, John 14, 6, and you come to Christ, the God, of, the, the, who is the God man of the scripture. 
that Jesus, not some phony Jesus that people try to promote, whether it's Islam or Buddhism or whatever it might be, it's the biblical Jesus come through to God the Father through him. With that, thank you again. God bless you all. Thank you, brother. Thanks, Pat. Enjoyed it. All right. Bye-bye. If you like our YouTube channel, please subscribe by clicking on the subscribe button and then by also clicking the bell above to get an automatic update whenever we produce another YouTube video for our See Answers TV channel. Please share our videos with your friends and relatives. May God bless you. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what is done for Christ will last. See related videos by tapping or clicking screens.